This afternoon we're considering the title, The Son of God. And of course, we're relating this to our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, this is more than a title for our Lord. It is also part of his essential being. He is, in reality and in totality, the pre-existent, eternal Son of God from all eternity. Now let, let me show you where we're going. We're going to have an introduction now. It's a shorter introduction than it will be this evening. And then I've cut down my number of points that I usually bring. There are only three tonight. Um, divine statements concerning the Son of God. Secondly, evil statements concerning the Son of God. Thirdly, good statements concerning the Son of God. I do have a fourth section, and if we do have time, we will just touch upon it, and I'll give you some suggestions. But that would be called theological statements concerning the Son of God. And then we have a brief conclusion. So, by introduction then, there are any number of ways in which I could have dealt with the title, The Son of God. I could have gone to a single passage and completely expounded that meaning. If I'd done so, I could have gone to the passage that we read earlier, 1 John chapter 5, um, because it has a number of chapters in which this title comes out very clearly. And the Son of God comes out in different shades of meaning. So I could have selected a single verse and expounded that verse. And that, of course, would have been profitable for us. Um, I could have treated the subject theologically and given the implications. Now, in section four, I think I've worked up to about 21 theological implications of the Son of God. And each one of them would be a message in themselves. And as I was thinking also, I think they have to be preached also someday in some church or some other occasion. I could have selected a single chapter. And indeed that's why we read 1 John chapter 5. Because in that chapter we have the most um, uh, references to the Son of God both in title and in the Son with the Father. So if you're looking for one chapter that encapsulates everything, 1 John chapter 5. But there it's specifically dealing with the Son of God and belief. So it's only one part of the vast whole. Fourthly, I could have chosen a book of Holy Scripture in which the title is found in abundance. And again, that would be 1 John. And we could have gone from chapter 1 through to chapter 5 and went from one subject to the next. Now all of these ways are legitimate and would be equally rewarding. But I've chosen, however, to take a broader scope and perhaps a more devotional approach this afternoon by looking at the subject in both the Old and New Testament passages. In doing so, I'm going to treat the subject of the Son of God from the perspective of individuals and groups who either witnessed or actually used the term. So that's where we're going this afternoon. Looking at individuals or groups that actually witnessed the hearing of this statement um, by an individual or by those who were internally um, guided by God the Holy Spirit to recognize who the one in front of them was and to utter that statement. In doing so, we shall find a breadth of understanding and a recognition of the subject to our own hearts and lives. We shall also discover that this is not an obscure or an isolated subject which has been blown out of all proportion from the Bible. 
we shall, we shall find that the Son of God permeates the whole of Scripture, revealing the importance of this truth. So let's bear that in mind this afternoon. The witnesses and the users of this statement. This is going to be the theme of this message. Now first of all, section 1, divine statements concerning the Son of God. And we shall be looking at this from, as we've just sung, from the three persons of the glorious triunity. From Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So firstly, the Father. Now I'm going to be giving out passage references here, but don't feel you have to turn to them unless you really wish to. Um, because I have them in front of me and I'm going to be reading them out directly. There will be passages that we will go to, extended passages. So first of all, in the Old Testament, Israel corporately were called sons of God. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 1, verse 31, the, the word of God says, And in the wilderness, where thou hast seen how that the Lord thy God bore thee, as a man doth bear his son in all thy way that ye went until that ye came into this place. So here this group of people that Moses uh, encouraged and cudgeled and pulled and drew out of Egypt, this group comprising of both men and women, Children, young and old, believer and non-believer, a mixed multitude also, and other followers. Um, no distinction is made here in this passage. In the Father's own words, corporately, this group at that particular time in history was his son. I think it's important to remember. Um, also, in the book of Hosea, in chapter 11, verse 1, when Israel was a child, I'm sure you know this verse well, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Also in the book of Hosea, in chapter 1 and verse 10, the scripture says, Ye are the sons of the living God, speaking about the Israelites that were then alive at that particular time. But this statement that we, we looked at in Hosea 11 verse 1, um, this event and this text has been used by God, the Holy Spirit, through inspiration of the Gospel writer Matthew, and given a more high and but more limited meaning. Matthew 2 verse 15. And there, and there was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. So we have there in the Old Testament intimations of the Son of God becoming an individual, not a nation, but an individual as such. And this individual being the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be a passage that you could turn to. Is um, Psalm 2. Because we're going to spend a few moments here. Um, in Psalm 2 and in verse 6. The father is speaking. And says. Yet have I set my king. Upon my holy hill of Zion. Here the Father is speaking of the Son through the psalmist, and we know that the psalmist here is David, that um, we're, we're, we're confirmed about that in the Acts of the Apostles, um, and inspired to see that this one here is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not. Um, David himself, uh, nor Solomon, nor any other king. Now why do I say that? Well, in Acts 13 verse 33 and Hebrews uh, 1 verse 1, we have a quotation from verse 7 of Psalm 2. 
I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So here we find a divine testimony by the Father about the Son contained in the Old Testament scriptures and if you want to get your chronological thinking into place somewhere around a thousand BC that the Son of God would be an individual and as we know today would be Jesus Christ the Son of God. Now it's interesting to note, and, and, and I, I, this uh, what staggered me, and I, and I don't know why it staggered me, because it really should have been um, quite obvious, but it was interesting to note that the very few Old Testament references of the Father to the Son of God is always set in a, an eschatological theme. Now, when I mean that, I don't mean the first advent, I mean the second advent. And, and that's very significant. Um, the Father, even in the early days, before the establishment of the church, which was always in his mind, um, had in view the latter things. And the majority, if not all, of these passages of the Father to the Son in the Old Testament seem to be based around the second advent of our Lord. But also in Psalm 2, in verse 8 and 9, we find, keeping the eschatological view in mind, um, verse 8, the inheritance of the heathen he will receive. Now, bear that in mind for later on. And also, the inheritance of the earth. And then in verse 9, the rule of righteousness. So there is, is proof, of, as if we need proof, um, that the Father speaking of the Son, speaking of him in the second advent more than the first advent. Now, we do have scriptures in which, of course, uh, God the Holy Spirit speaks of the Son on his first advent. Um, 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 Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9 and uh, other passages um, Zechariah uh, chapter 12 and so on um, but when the Father speaks of the Son specifically it's in these terms of the second advent now exhortation again in Psalm 2 is given to every generation to have a right relationship with the Son of God and that's how the psalm ends. Psalm 2 verses 10 through 12 is an exhortation to kiss the Son. To have a relationship with the Son of God. Now I've got one more final reference in the Old Testament of the Father to the Son. And that's in Psalm 45. So if you're in Psalm 2, just flick over to Psalm 45. And it's found there in verse 6. I'm sure you know it. It's a well-known verse. It's also quoted in the New Testament. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of thy, of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Now this scripture, on its own and in its context, is a very powerful text. Um, on the absolutely sovereign, absolute sovereignty of God in all the earth. However, uh, when divinely inspired writer of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, uses the text, he brings out its total and fuller meaning. He prefixes it with the words, Hebrews 1 verse 8, but unto the Son he saith, so we could read Psalm 45, verse 6 again. But unto the Son, God saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. This is one of the most powerful testimonies in all of the word of God to the deity of Christ uh, as the Son of God. In fact, it's a good passage of scripture. Go to Hebrews 1 when you have one of those 
people knock on your door from the Watchtower Society and, uh, and you say, well, what about this text? Here it is in the Old Testament. Here it is in the New Testament. And it's here it's prefixed. But the Father, God, says to God the Son, Thy throne, O God, the deity of Christ, and, and also um, it's an eternal kingdom, um, and it's a righteous one. Not many references in the Old Testament, as you would expect. The Son of God is a New Testament um, um, title. But as you can see there, there is a statement in the Old Testament of the Father to the Son. Now what about the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Um, now turn with me now to John's Gospel because I've got some sort of a little tour through this book. I've confined it basically to John's Gospel. I could have gone to other passages but I kept it with John because this is, seems to be John the Apostles, one of, the Lord, one of his favourite uh, titles of the Lord, as I say, it's in the it's in the, the one John many times, um, and he uses it most in one chapter, and uh, we have it in John's Gospel also. But others we could turn to. We're going to remain here. Um, here we have our Lord's own testimony concerning Himself as the Savior of the world and as the Son of God. Now, I'm going to have to turn to my Bible here. If we turn to John's Gospel in chapter 3 and in verse 16, again another famous one, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now this is recorded by John the Apostle, but these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he's speaking about himself. And he's speaking to one who is a seeker after the truth. So the, the, the idea of thinking, well, let's get someone saved first. And then let's bring them on to the, the deeper truths. And surely the Son of God is maybe a, a, one of the deeper truths. Well, the Lord Jesus says, no. He says, one who is a seeker, Nicodemus, um, must be presented by the claims of the Son of God right at the outset. We, we shouldn't hum and haw. And, uh, we should present Jesus Christ as the Son of God. We should forget liberal thoughts and modernist ideas. We should always think that this is where we begin. I'm a great believer in creation. And I believe that that's where we begin in gospel preaching also. We should present God as the creator today. Because if people don't see that they are responsible to someone, then we can speak about God and people think of oh, our God, any God, this God. That God, old ideas, new ideas. But if we present the Creator, we have limited it to Jehovah. Also in the same uh, chapter, verse 34. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him, the Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things unto his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth upon him. See the importance of the truth of the Son of God. It's a believe or a believe not. It's a believe with blessing and I believe not with condemnation 
if anything's black and white, surely verse 36 is one of the clearest passages in the whole of Scripture. Now that was speaking to Nicodemus. What about the Lord speaking to another group of people? Well, in one uh, in, in John's Gospel again, chapter 5 this time, and in verse 19. Now here, the Lord is speaking um, to the Jews that were trying to persecute him. We find it in verse 16. It was the Jews that were trying to persecute him, just if you want the context. But we're reading from verse 19. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the, the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honour the Son, even as they honour the Father. He that honoureth not the Son, honoureth not the Father, which hath sent him. I'm sure you've read some of the, the, the books of the cults, and, and uh, I'm thinking of maybe some Americans in my mind just now that have had a cult. And within the cult, they have the specialist teaching that this one is a a special illuminated being. Um, maybe he doesn't call himself directly the Son of God, but he has a special attachment or relationship or connection or communication to God. Um, but that's really for the small group. Maybe the group within the group. Um, but certainly not for the press or for the, 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 the digest of the, the larger world. Um, but the Lord Jesus Christ here, when he was speaking of himself as the Son of God, does not select the group. A seeker first, and a whole group of Jews seeking to try and persecute him. And very clearly there, um, um, he's saying, well look, if you don't honour me, you don't honour the Father. And of course there's a theological implication there, um, of the Son of God, and glory, and co-glory with the Father. Now these Jews did not understand the implications of the word of the Lord Jesus. Sorry, these Jews did understand the implications of the Lord Jesus. In fact, better than many liberals do today. Because when they understood it, they realised, we're going to have to do something here. We're going to have to bow to this man as the Son of God, whom he claims to be, or we have to put him to death. Because we don't believe him. Again, we find in, uh, in this chapter what we find in Psalm 2 in the Old Testament, that the title of the Lord Jesus Christ has an eschatological setting. Look at verse 25 of, of, um, of, of chapter 5. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. And the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And notice the, um, uh, the, it's at the, the second advent, and it's at the, 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 the first resurrection, and, and the believers will be called out. They will hear, but they will only hear the voice of the Son of God. Those who have not claimed the Son of God in this life cannot and will not hear his voice at that time on that day. So, a reference there. Also, in the same chapter, verse 28, is it chapter 28? Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. Now, this is maybe a reference here now to the second resurrection, because it's not going to be just believer is going to be all um, all shall hear and the ones that hear the son of God 
at that time, at the end of the millennium, um, well, we can only imagine how it will be that they might be able to hear that. Also for the Jews to whom he was immediately speaking and to the succeeding generation, he will be their judge. And he will judge according to this word. Not according to something else in some other celestial realm, but according to this. Now, I notice that time is, is moving on, so we, we shall move on. There are another one, two, three, four, eight references in the new in John's Gospel of the Son, Jesus Christ, calling himself not only the Son, not only calling God the Father, but calling himself the Son of God. And, um, and those who in the Christendom who try to explain away these things explain away their own salvation. Now we're still in the first section divine statements concerning the Son of God and we're in the third section now God the Holy Spirit. Now I think you've seen already as we look through these passages that God the Holy Spirit is in all of these passages. He is the one that laid upon um, um, writers in the Old Testament and writers in the New Testament um, to write these things. Um, I've got in my notes here, this requires further study and further development. But let me just give you what I've got just now. However, we must always be mindful that he is the divine inspirer. That is God the Holy Spirit. He is the inspirer of his people um, to bring men to the understanding of what he wants us to know. We have seen already his use in Psalm 2 and we've already seen his use in the, in the book of the Acts and in the book of Hebrews. And it's no accident that these writers just thought, well, I'll pluck an Old Testament scripture and I'll give it a, a, a modern meaning, a New Testament meaning. Um, you know, these people were inspired. Uh, inspired not in a way that I was inspired to bring this message or that any of us are inspired sometimes when we're sitting at home wondering a course of action and then suddenly the light bulb goes on and we know what we're going to do. That's not inspiration that we're speaking about. That's maybe a good bit of enlightenment based upon a bit of meditation on the scriptures but divine inspiration is where an individual was given what he should bring and was so um, um, kept in, during this process in which he was kept from error and personal reasoning or thinking or ideas um, to give us what he wished us to have. So that what we have in the scriptures is what we should have. Nothing more, nothing less. So beware of the renewal movement today that are continually looking for their new visions and their new prophecies. You know, I read, a, I listened to a number of um, tapes recently of evaluations of the charismata over the last 40 years. And you know, it was embarrassing for me to listen to it <laughs> because they'd made this prophecy and, and, and said this event and made this date and, and this prediction so on. And they've come and they've gone. Watch that. Every one of these movements that come, and it seems sadly they come from North America, not exclusively so. They began in this country. In fact, they began in this, well, they began in Scotland, in fact, near the Gairloch, that was propagated by a, a minister down here. Um, <coughs> but beware of renewal, looking for visions, looking for prophecies, we have the full scripture in the word of God. Um, now having said that, um, 
I don't really need to prove it, but let's do it anyway. We'll, we can go to a number of scripture. Let's, if you're still in John's Gospel, let's look, because that's where um, we have the proof of the divine inspirer. In uh, chapter 14, there in verse 26, we, we see, But the Comforter, God the Holy Spirit, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. And also in chapter 15, and the same, verse 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So what we're really saying is that this, this passage it needs more development. Uh, really, the, the, what we have in the scriptures, uh, when someone other than a divine speaker uses that title, um, it is through divine inspiration and not through human admiration. Now, we're going on to the second section. And um, this one... Um, I noticed uh, one or two reactions when I mentioned it. Evil statements concerning the Son of God. Yes, I know, um, studying this, I, I would never have looked at this before. Um, now, we should they really expect this reaction in a fallen world where uh, all is not now perfect as it had originally been. You know, I had a wonderful tape this morning when I was out walking, and it, and it gave me a beautiful picture of what the original creation was. And some thoughts I had even, never even thought of before myself, and, and how glorious it was before the, the temptation and the fall. Um, how wonderful it must have been. We can only ever guess it. But we don't have to guess at a fallen world, because we're part of it. Um, we find that these group of detractors fall into two groups and this is very important um, those in this world and those from the invisible world so let us remember that there's always someone else or some demon out there whispering something um, let's take the latter first those from the invisible world two groups as we would expect. The wicked one and the wicked ones. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 3 and 6, the prince of darkness in his temptation of the Lord, he uses the statement there twice. So the statement, the Son of God, is used upon the lips of the chief of the fallen angels he uses it but you'll notice that every time that Satan uses that title he prefixes it with the word F with only two parties present and one being the real actual son of God the doubt that is cast here whether it be real or only apparent, it's only in his part, only in the wicked one's part, not on the part of the Lord. So we see the statement is used in the scriptures and it's used from an unclean source, from the prince of the power of darkness, because he knows who Jesus Christ is. He knows that he is the eternal son of God. He knows that he is the only saviour. And he is the one that is putting doubts into the minds of people today concerning him. Second, demons. First of all, we have possessing demons. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, what we have, uh, what uh, we have the, the, the words of the demons through a person that was possessed. 
What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Now here we have the, the, the title again. A true title. And notice this time, no, no ifs and buts. Um, they know exactly who is standing before them. And, uh, and notice there that it, the, there's a group of them, we, as in the man um, who was um, possessed with a many called legion. Um, corporately, they know exactly who this person is. And, and you can just picture the situation. They are fearing and they are trembling because they know who he is, what he is to them and what he will ultimately do to them. They know that their final judgment is in the hands of this man. There is a degree of respect there. A degree of reverence. But you'll notice that in other occasions when um, a demon utters the name of the Lord, that the Lord says, quiet. Because he does not wish an acclamation or acknowledgement from an unclean source. But they know. How, you know, when you think of these unbelievers that we have today, and I mean the unbelievers that were within Christendom, not the ones that are outside Christendom, but those that claim, and, and they read passages like this, surely they should come to fear and tremble also. So that was their united testament. Um, also in Mark 5, verse 7, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? Here is a demon that gives a grander title. Knowing not only who the one in front of him is, but also where he comes from, from the Father. Now that's possessing demons and there is another little section here. Unclean spirits in Mark chapter 3 verse 11. Thou art the Son of God. In Luke 4 verse 41. Thou art Christ the Son of God. Now on both of these occasions our Lord rebuked them and would not receive recognition from them. Why? Well, verse 41 tells us, for they knew that he was the Christ. And because they knew he was the Christ, he, they knew he was the Son of God. Hypothetically, they could have thought, oh, it was maybe Gabriel or, or the Archangel Michael, but it's not. It was the Son of God. There was a definite recognition there. That's what they added. So, that is um, evil statements concerning the Son of God from the invisible world. What about the visible world now? Well, we find that things don't get much better here. That people who live upon the earth, who had seen the miracles, heard the miracles, enjoyed maybe in some cases the miracles, um, well... Matthew chapter 26, verse 63. But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be Christ, the Son of God. Is there not a little echo there? You know, when I read that, a little echo there of, of the, the garden of temptation again. Remember that wilderness? If thou be, here it is again. But here it is from the high priest, the one who had the scriptures. This was not someone from Upper Volta or some um, um, Polynesian island who had never heard the scriptures before. But here is one who had had the scriptures, the Old Testament, all of it. Who knew the Isaiah 53s and other passages of like? 
and here he does not recognize. But one thing he does recognize, that there is to be a son of God. Isn't that significant? That there is to be a son of God, but he just does not recognize this in Jesus Christ. Abysmal, abysmal, ignorant, and doubt. Well, the next one doesn't get much better. Matthew chapter 27, verses 39 through 40. Here we have the mockers at the cross. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself if thou be the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Now, you'll notice there's a difference here, I think, between the high priest. The high priest, I believe, was in darkness. And he was probably wondering, is he or is he not? Maybe leaning on one more than the other, obviously, from what he said. But here, no, this is different. This is mocking here. This, this is putting the Son of God, if you please, not an angel, not an apostle, not a holy prophet of old, but this is the Son of God that they've hung on the cross and they've done what they could to him. But that's not enough to, know, to put five marks in his flesh. Um, they mock and they use the devil's mocking tone. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. There's cruelty, cruelty there. And these ones are not just ignorant, but they're woefully, woefully deceived. Again, verse 43 of the same chapter. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Now this, this mocking is not quite so bad because it's really just quoting what the Lord Jesus Christ himself had said. Um, there is mocking in it, of course, because they're looking to test the Father. They're looking to see a miracle. They're doing this and, um, and then they quote the Lord's own words because he said that I am the Son of God. The only conclusion with this one is that not only did they not believe the leaders, um, they didn't believe their own eyes, nor did they believe the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in continuing in this section, um, as you would expect, it, it still doesn't get any better. Um, in Luke chapter 22, in verses 66 through 71, um, the elders of the people, the chief priests and the scribes, then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? Well, there's no mocking here. Um, there is definite... Um, conclusions, uh, there's definite seeking for conclusions um, but let's think of it, these people it specifically says they are the elders of the people, the chief priests the scribes, these are the ones who were the representatives of the people if they didn't know how was the pig herder and the sheep um, herder and, the, and the, the, the man at the grinding stone how were they going to know how were they going to be taught how were they going to be edified if the leaders um, conclude in verse 70 with a question art thou the son of God then finally in this section the Jews themselves in John chapter 19 in verse 7 the Jews answered him we have a law and by our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. So here we have, with this group of Jews, um, a slightly better understanding. They have their law through Moses, from Jehovah. And they know that because of what he says, 
he must die. But one thing that they do make a correct statement was that he made himself the Son of God. Now, they mean it in the sense that, well, he decided upon that for himself. Um, but we can take it as he is the Son of God. Legalistic deception. And then we need to watch out for legalistic deceptions. Not just concerning the Son of God, but concerning many things in life and in the Christian life. Let's hurry on. Section 3. Good statements. And that's where we're going to conclude this afternoon. Good statements concerning the Son of God. Now these statements are real heartfelt expressions. They come from a rich variety of sources. They come from the palace of a great king and world leader to the arid deserts of southern Palestine to a visit to the, uh, from a visitor to the country. These confessions come from both of those who have considered the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ or those who have just been introduced to these truths. They come from those whom we would expect to hear such words and those from whom we would not expect to hear such words. Again, as in this previous section, um, we have testimonies from the two realms. The invisible realm and the visible realm. Let's go for the invisible realm. Well, these we can go through fairly quickly um, because they're all very familiar to us. From the invisible realm, again, the Father owns the Son. Mark chapter 1, verse 11, um, at the baptism of our Lord, and there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Um, now I confess there, the statement, the title's not in there, but it's the Father owning the Son. So we know exactly who is meant and what is meant. Secondly, at the transfiguration of our Lord, Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, and behold, a voice came out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Father adds these words, Hear ye him. The conclusion here is nothing but that it was audible and it was divine. And it's different from the ones that we saw earlier, which were contained in Scripture. These were historical, real, lifetime situations, whereby there were real people there, of what number we do not know, but they were there. They heard from heaven what was the word of God. You know, when this happened on another occasion on the road to Damascus, only one individual heard the voice. The others heard, it's the Greek word phony, where we get our word phone from. They heard the sound, but only Paul heard the words. But on this occasion, all those that were there heard. And of course, there's all the other parts that we can, I can never describe to you, the experience of it. The experience of the day and the tone of the voice. We'll never know that, not, not in this lifetime. And all the things that all these people there did and were left in no doubt that this is my son. Only one other um, in this group, um, the angel Gabriel from the invisible realm. Luke chapter 1, verse 32, speaking to Mary about her yet unborn child. He shall be great and shall be called the son of of the highest and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David and again in verse 35 of the same chapter answering Mary's question this time and the angel answered and said unto her the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee therefore also that holy thing which shall be born uh, born of thee shall be called the Son of God Because the angel Gabriel knows exactly who this one is that has been born or is about to be born into this world. Now I don't know 
I don't know how much the Father, God the Father, um, or even the Godhead in eternity, has revealed to angels about the divine plan, about the decree. I don't, I don't know. They may have a Bible like we do, different, a celestial Bible, um, about plans and decrees. But we know from the scriptures that they are observers of what God does upon the earth. And they are observers of us, of how we respond and live to the knowledge that we have been given. But nonetheless, the angel Gabriel gives this tremendous statement. One from the invisible world. Now again, it was a one-on-one situation here. But a glorious one. And one that Mary didn't ponder in her heart and keep to herself. Thank goodness. She revealed it so that we have it in the scriptures today. Right. Secondly, in the invisible world. Sorry, the visible world. Well, and this will be our final section. Um, the combined testimony of the disciples. Matthew chapter 14 and verse 33. Here is the combined testimony now of the disciples um, on board the ship. Remember at that time when the Lord had walked upon the water and Peter thought he could do the same, did the same for a while, then thought about it. Bad thing to do, Peter, thinking about it. Should have just trusted Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. You know, I've had a moment like that. That's when the penny drops, isn't it? They've been told, they've been loved, they've been shepherded by the great shepherd of the sheep. They've seen his miracles, they've heard how he's spoken to people, they've heard how he's answered people without preparation, and and here they come. Thou art the Son of God. What a wonderful testimony. And that by our early predecessors and believers in the faith. Now for an individual, Peter, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. In answer to the question of our Lord, but whom say ye that I am? Verse 15. Peter answers, and Simon Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Here Peter, and not that the penny had dropped, that's already dropped, um, but here is the confession elicited from the lips of an individual. People are saying this about me, is that about me. And you know, we can be greatly influenced by what people say, can't we? We sometimes have our mind made up. And someone says something, oh, I never thought about that. And somebody says something, oh, there's the other implications. And, and we can't change our minds, can't we? Um, Here the Lord tests Peter. What, what do you say? What is your testimony? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. No, no quivering there, no wavering, no thinking, no consulting books or commentaries. It comes straight from the heart. These good statements concerning the Lord Jesus Christ come from the heart. One of them uh, we're going to see in a moment, quite unexpectedly. Um, Again, in John chapter 6, verses 68 through 69, when some disciples... Uh, turned back. Now here we have an interesting situation. Some disciples turned back. They weren't going to follow him anymore for whatever reason or not. Now Peter spoke for all the disciples who continued to follow. Then Simon Peter answered Jesus, Lord to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a tremendous testimony of faith, isn't it? Um, we don't think you're the Son of God. Well, we've just had a, we've just had a little vote and, and we've got a majority decision here. Ten of us say you are the Son of God. No, it, it's here. We are sure. 
We believe and are sure that thou art the Son of God. Here Peter speaks as a spokesman on behalf of others, but he's only saying what they would have said if they had been given the same opportunity. It's wonderful. Acts chapter 3, verse 13, verse 26. In Peter's first sermon to the public gathered at uh, Jerusalem, he he takes this opportunity to announce uh, this truth concerning the Son of God. Um, Now, the Lord is gone. We've heard what the mockers said at the cross concerning the Son of God. Um, We've heard what the Jews have said um, uh, to our Lord before going to the cross. Um, um, The Lord has died. He, he, He... um, but there have been those resurrection appearances, haven't there? There have been those appearances. Has Peter's thinking changed? Verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers have glorified his son, Jesus. And verse 26. Unto you first, God having raised up his son, Jesus. No change in Peter. No change passage of a few months without the presence of the Lord but there is the presence now because this is after the upper room experience and the third person of the Holy Trinity has come into these people and he's endued them with special powers at that time This, these people at this time uh, Peter is the archetypical charismatic on this occasion he is speaking By being boldly borne along by God the Holy Spirit. And now this unusual one. Unexpected in many ways. In Matthew chapter 27 verse 54. And again it's found in Mark 15 verse 35. This man's not even named. We will never know his name this side of glory. He is an unnamed Roman centurion. This personal testimony was borne by one who watched all the proceedings at the death of our Lord. Now when the centurion and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, What? Truly, this was the Son of God. Now I don't doubt these people were borne along by Holy Ghost guidance on this occasion. But it was the mightiness of the occasion. You know, we can all be very guilty of when we skim over the scriptures. And and the one thing that, it's a good thing about the scriptures, and can I say reverently, it's a bad thing about the scriptures. The scriptures are brief. But they are brief in such a way that we have all the truth that we have in just a compass of a few words. Have you ever noticed that? You look into a passage of scripture and what maybe you or I would say in the space of 10-15 minutes can be said in just a few words. And how we would long to say afterwards, and this is what I mean, I wish there were more, is could it have been expanded for us? I think the situation of that day, we've never been there and never will be. This centurion had followed orders. He'd done what was asked of him. He was charge of another hundred, so he was a supervisor. He'd seen those things, watched those things, and there were other people there also. Earthquake comes. Fear. And everything else that happened at that moment in time. And the only conclusion that this man can come to, truly, this was the Son of God. I think that's good. I like that statement there. Maybe someday, our American friends often, when they come over preaching and they and they, they say certain things, you know, I remember one coming across and saying, you know, I want to go up to those four men in heaven that broke up that man's home when they lowered the, the paralyzed man through the roof and asked, did you repair his roof afterwards? Well, that's a minor, a minor thing, but I think I would like to know this man's name. I think I would. Now, uh, fourthly, uh, the Gospel writer Mark. In the introduction of his Gospel, Mark 1, verse 1, Mark nails his colours to the mast. 
in the introduction of his gospel, he doesn't wait to halfway through, but at the very beginning, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. More or less saying that those of you that do not believe the Son of God, well, you can stop here. <laughs> you don't have to go any further. If you don't believe he's the Son of God, you're not going to believe anything else that comes afterwards. So he gives it right at the beginning. Uh, fifthly, the apostle and writer of the five books of the New Testament. And here's John. Right. Um, now, I've mentioned it before. Uh, now, by far, John both uses and records um, others who use the title more than any other in the Bible. Um, let me just read these out to you because time is going. John 1, verse 18. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. In chapter 20, in verse 31. But these things are written is that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing you might have life through his name. Now that's maybe speaking to me tonight, isn't it? Um, these things are written. The brevity of this. The small Bible that you have, these things are written. Why? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have eternal life. Um, I mentioned earlier, 1 John has over 20 references in the, the book of 1 John. 11 of these in that chapter that we read earlier. It's also mentioned in 2 John, uh, verses 3 and 9. Small book, two references. And also John uses it in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 18. Right, we're almost finished. John the Baptist. John chapter 1 verse 34. At the baptism of our Lord, and I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist, um, although related uh, to the Lord, uh, didn't know the situation but on that day he did know um, and of course the one that was alluded to earlier by Mr. Toms and the one that we will make more of tonight is Nathaniel Nathaniel in, in John chapter 1 verse 49 is the only place in the whole of the Bible but I'm open to, to, um, to, to, to uh, guidance on that but it's the only place I can find in scripture where the two titles are found the son of God and the king of Israel and remember that this statement is by someone who has just been awakened. Nathaniel answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Do you not feel that? It's from the heart. A soul that has been awakened can only look to the Lord and confess the Lord. Martha. Um, in John chapter 11 verse 27 after the death of her brother and while talking about the resurrection with the Lord she saith unto him yea Lord I believe that thou art the Christ the son of God which should come into the world other comments I'd like to make but we must push on um, Ethiopian eunuch that one in the arid desert of southern Palestine after intense reading of the scripture, um, meets this man out of nowhere and gives him the explanation. And then, well, let's use that phrase again, the penny drops. <laughs> the Ethiopian is, is awakened. And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He never met him. He come from a foreign country. He came on business, and when you're in, abroad in business, and that's all that's in your mind, you're thinking business, business, business all the time. And yet, his heart is awakened, he recognizes the Christ, and confesses the Christ. And finally, the Apostle Paul. Just after his awakening and the appearance of Jesus Christ to him, Acts chapter 9, verse 20, and straight away Paul preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Now as we've seen here today, there are not a lot of references. Um, the subject is large and it's comprehensive. Um, but it's very full and very clear 
and its implications. You can't change any of these statements unless you change the meaning completely. It's a subject which is useful for both the proclamation and the defence of the gospel. As I mentioned earlier, I've only scratched the surface here this afternoon. I hope and pray that I've been suggestive for you, that um, you may be able to take the subject. Um, I, I know that I listened to the tapes again, and, uh, and many of the tapes that I listened to, I take the study a little further, because it's been suggestive and helpful for me. Well, there's much more I could give you, um, theological statements that may come out in another message. Um, I commend the subject to you, the Son of God. It is full of warmth, it is full of meaning, and full of devotion for us as the Lord's people. Amen.